0: Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Nicole Franklin.
1: And I'm Bryant Monte. And for this episode, you had the type of phone conversation that I enjoy from time to time.
0: You mean checking in with your friend's parents? Oh, yes. It's so nice, isn't it?
1: It truly is.
0: (laughs) My longtime friend, Carrie Graber, and I met because we're members of the wonderful organization, New York Women in Film and Television. In fact, she is a former NYWIFT board president. Now, look, it's New York. New Yorkers pack the city from the tops of the skyscrapers to the subterranean depths of human existence, or let's just say the subway.
1: But I thought you loved the subway. (laughs) You joke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes it feels like as if the entire population of the city rides the same subway car, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) Which is why the fact that my friend Carrie comes from the state of South Dakota, Where living in the city means being among a population of 30,000 in one area and less than 200,000 in another. I mean, it's just even more fascinating that a big move to the East Coast wasn't impossible. But Carrie comes from great stock. She told me her mother is a pistol who was at one point her hometown's first lady.
1: Nice. I've never minded small town living, you know, but what a way to make the most of it.
0: Indeed. So here's my chat with Doris Carrie Graber. She places family above all else, like you. (laughs) Mm. And it was so cool to learn about the decades long cousin letter that shared news across the miles.
1: Sounds like a tradition worth saving. So let's listen in.
0: So I'm so excited to meet you because you're my friend's mom, and um, one of the things we want to capture in this series before you go is that, yes, there's no time like the present to capture these stories, and my friend thought, oh, my mother would be great, so Doris Carrie Graber, welcome. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Nicole. Thank you.
0: I'm so excited to meet you. First of all, everybody loves to hear, um, what date were you born? What year?
2: I was born May 24th, 1927. I do believe that uh, is a, a year that is kind of um, famous for uh, Lindbergh's flight to, uh, over the um, ocean to Paris, I do believe. Didn't he go to Paris?
0: Well, yeah, he was going somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that he is was, so exciting. He was in flight. Okay, that that reminds me, I was born in 1969. I know the 60s were tumultuous, but I got to find a really good marker for something that my (laughs) birth year can be associated with. (laughs) Right. Well, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because um, you are my friend Carrie's mom, and I Mm -hmm. just love how, um, well, Carrie and I are just very good friends, and she's like, you know, adopted family to me. But I wanted to use this episode to talk about family ties. And then she mentioned that you were part of a cousin letter. I'm like, I've heard of that. Yes. <laughs> Could you tell everybody what that is, the cousin letter, like maybe how it started with your family and, and you know, just tell us how it went, how it kept going?
2: We had very, very close cousins, a cl- very close relationship. There were originally, I think, 20 to begin with. And of course we lost lost them along the way. In fact, there are only three of the original 20 cousins left. And uh-huh. what we did, it was like a round robin. You received the letter, you took out the letter that you had previously written. And then it had, we had designated guests or uh, cousins that we sent the letter to. And it just continued as a round robin. You got the letter, you took out your old letter, you inserted another, a new letter, and off it went again. And it went on for, I would say close to 40 years. Wow. It was a very long time. Um, And the relationship began, uh, we lived, I, my family, my parents and my sister and I lived in Aberdeen, South Dakota, which was the big city (laughs) to my cousins who lived in the, we called it the village, of Wilmot, South Dakota, which probably had a population of about 1500 or something. And it was, for them to get to come to Aberdeen, to the big city was a big, big thing. But we went, my sister and I went all, spent a good deal of time in Wilmot with this nucleus of cousins. Um, throughout the years and we spent summers there I can remember one summer when there were probably 12 of us who slept outside we didn't have sleeping bags or anything we probably had a blanket and a pillow oh but we all we slept outside and I said how on god's earth could we have done that when the mosquitoes were so bad and somebody said well you silly goose There were no mosquitoes because it was so dreadfully dry in South Dakota at that time that the mosquitoes did not populate or propagate or whatever mosquitoes do. (laughs) But that was, and and that was, so we had been close since we were, you know, infants, really, Mm -hmm. and then just grew up together and and, uh, maintained that relationship until... As I say, there's three of us left now is all.
0: That's amazing. I mean, um, and, and how long would it take? I think the cousin letter, when you wrote your portion, you put it in the mail and it's a, it's added to everybody right. else. And then yep. when it comes it, back to you, how, what was the time length like of that revolution? <laughs> was it like a it, year? It,
2: yes, oh, no, 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 it was never a year. If it got longer than say five or six months, then somebody, usually Cousin Elaine, is the one who got who got on the pike and said, who is holding up the letter? Mm. And we all got a serious dressing down until whoever it was who did not respond immediately, you were supposed to keep it three days and then get it off. But it usually was five, six months, I think.
0: I don't know where to put my letters now. I don't know where, like... Do you keep them in a trunk, in a um, jewelry box? Like, do you throw them away? I want to give my stuff to a museum, but who am I, you know?
2: <laughs> I, I keep my things in, but what I have kept primarily now is I, I have just a few of those letters and they're probably just the latter ones. So I, I there's no problem with those. Nobody wants them now because everybody, practically everybody is gone. Um, but I do have things like the letters that would, were written to specifically to me or, and to my husband um, after our, we lost our two children mm-hmm. and those things. And I'm with you. I, I don't know what to do with those because I can't bear to throw them away. And yet I don't want to burden my children with them because then what do they do with them? <laughs> You know, it's it's a vicious cycle, and we just don't know what to do with all
0: those things. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we frame them or something. My mother still has her father's postcards that he would send, and and yep. um, so this was yep. not to her, but he would send them to other relatives. She got a hold of them. So we're talking nineteen twenties and thirties, and right. um, you know, so I don't I don't want to throw them away, and I'm a descendant, so I would ask your children, maybe, what do they want to do? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and do you know what they say? Particularly, Cassie says, "Oh, I'll take these before Carrie gets them."
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so we are taking a tour right now of South Dakota with um, the former first lady. I understand you were. Uh, oh, <laughs> you were. Yeah. Is this an elective position? Tell <laughs> us about uh, becoming first lady.
2: Well, it's um, it was sponsored by. Um, a women's group in Aberdeen, a, a Beta Sigma Phi, that um, and they chose a woman who had, had uh, contributed something to the city of Aberdeen that that they figured was deserved a little recognition or whatever, <laughs> and that's what it was. So it was the organization itself that apparently that voted on on each each first lady along the line.
0: But to become the first slave Aberdeen, now we're talking about Aberdeen, South Dakota is um, under 30,000 people right now. Right. Okay, right. so <laughs> so the big city that we've been talking about is maybe yes. not so big relatively speaking.
2: <laughs> no, 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 not at all.
0: <laughs> so what was it like growing up in um, South Dakota? And, and you're, you were born in the big city of Aberdeen or outside? No, I
2: was actually born in Wilmot and we moved to Aberdeen when I was two, hmm. so it's I claim both places. Okay, <laughs> I claim both, and um, lived in Aberdeen. Well, all of all of my life except when I went away to school and when we when I was first married, Carl was teaching in California, so we lived in California for two years and then. I said, uh, my apologies to any Californian who may be listening to this. I said I have to get back to God's country. When I was pregnant with the first child, I
0: said I I have to, I have to go back home. Okay. So we moved back to South Dakota. I, I've seen photos, gorgeous. But you, your detour outside of um, South Dakota was that you went to Northwestern. Yes, right, for right. school. So yes. I, a lot of people have heard of Northwestern, maybe fewer have heard of Aberdeen, <laughs> but You're that's right. great. And, and what did you study there at Northwestern?
2: Speech, it was called the school of speech when I went,
0: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> which is now communications. I think Carrie can set you straight on all of that. But, uh, but that it was just, it was the school of speech. And I majored in children's theater and interpretation. That's and fabulous. it was a wonderful experience i i loved it and then i then i went back home and got married
0: <laughs> yeah but um, a lot of people would say the story stops there you actually were a working woman i mean you worked yes. Um, yes. many different careers it sounds like plus you always did yes, community did. theater you were acting and starring in theater <laughs> i
2: i got my i got my uh my thrills from there yes and, We had a wonderful wonderful um community theater Mm. Aberdeen community theater uh with a young man who thank god stayed with the project and still is with it he came because his parents needed him he he was a budding uh theater major himself and had been with the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis Mm. and uh, came back and so we had some good fun years and some good productions and as I say, I, I got my thrills <laughs> through through that. But how Dreams do you even, come true in strangest ways?
0: They do. How do you remember the lines? I mean, the theater. I, I'd be terrified to star in a play because. And I heard your your last play that you ever did. Your 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 final farewell was driving Miss Daisy. I mean, that's a Correct. Lot of lines.
2: Correct. Correct. <laughs> I'll tell you something, Nicole. I. I was blessed with, with an excellent memory, which is fading somewhat now, I must admit. But I, I could always, by the end of a production or by the, by the time it was produced, I would know the lines of everybody oh. in the play besides my own. I had no trouble with my own. I could not do it today. Needless mm-hmm. to say, I could not do it today. But it was never a problem with wow. me and it was you know it was a blessing so but driving had,
0: daisy that was you were 80 years old i understand when you i was 80
2: yes i was 80 birthday. it was on my 80th birthday yes <sighs> one of the last
0: <laughs> that's amazing you did a full play uh it's mainly yeah. two people on stage right
2: yes well there were three there the, the son the the, that's right and and the driver
0: and and we had
2: a great cast and wonder it was it's in a small community you have a a nucleus of people who will give up everything to do what they love to do Mm -hmm. and do it happily and you know so it's it's a wonderful atmosphere yeah to be in a in a community production like like we had
0: So So you've done, how many plays do you think you've done over the course of your life?
2: Oh, oh, over the course of my life? Oh, it started when I was very young. I went to a Catholic school and we had a nun whose name was Sister Bernadette. Mm -hmm. And she was, um, she could have been Helen Hayes, reincarnated. (laughs) she, I remember one time we did a big production in you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the kind of productions that used to be on stage in small schools where you had a group of daisies and you had a group of frogs and you had a group of this and a group of that. And remember her saying at one point, how do you teach a group of elephants to dance? And she was frustrated beyond words because she had these little you know, first, second, third, through sixth grade, uh, how, just wanting to do their thing and they didn't do too well. So, but anyway- so Baby elephants. You know, yeah, <laughs> a bunch of elephants to dance. But so i really, um, I can't remember a time really when I didn't have something to do with some kind of performance. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah, It was, um, I, I won a statewide uh, speech, quote, speech contest uh, when I was in the sixth grade.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I, that I remember because I still have the medal that I won <laughs> for that.
0: And it, I love
2: it. You know, I just, I, I have, I've just always done something. And I guess because I couldn't stay away from it.
0: Well, the power yeah. of the spoken word, I guess, too. And you must, uh, must have loved yeah. um, the writing as well. You did. Absolutely. So you're doing these plays and productions throughout your career. Talk about some of the jobs you, ha- you held.
2: Well, the first job I had was um, my dad's. Uh, I had helped in my dad's office whenever he needed help. He had an insurance office. Mm. And um, when his business partner died, um he had dad had had a heart attack and and could not do the work alone, of course. Mm. And so he offered my husband offered Carl and my brother in law, Bob, the the office, the insurance office, if they would come to Aberdeen and take it over.
0: Mm.
2: So the the boys decided. Boys, I use that term loosely now. Um, <laughs> decided that yes, they would take they take it on but they couldn't come. Carl had a teaching contract to fulfill and Bob had um, a house to get rid of. They lived in Ohio. And so I went back, the children and I went back to Aberdeen. We were living in Minnesota at the time where Carl was teaching. We went back to Aberdeen and I went into the office to help my dad Mm. because I did have some background having helped him in previous years when they needed help. So I went back and went into the insurance business. And then I have a friend who uh, had an optometric office, and they got into trouble and didn't have someone to do a few things that needed to be done in the office. So he called and asked me if I would come and work at the office and try to get some things straightened out and stuff. So I did that for, oh, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe, something like that. It, it was always um, some someone, a friend or a relative that that said, would you come and, and help out, you know, part-time basis. Well, you know, a part-time job is never, there's no such thing as a part-time <laughs> right.
0: job. Right. You,
2: know, you get involved in that and all of a sudden it's it's full-time.
0: Yeah. So these these friends are asking you to, to come and help or, you know, yes, a family yes, yes. and you have five children. Yes.
2: Yes. <laughs> so it was a little wild at times and, you know, uh, they were active. They were involved in dramatics and the boys were great sports people. So, you know, we were very busy trying to keep up with our children. In their activities, and we didn't miss any of their activities. Mm. It's it, no, we didn't miss a ball game. We didn't miss a play. We didn't miss. We didn't miss anything that involved our kids.
0: I think they we're still trying to figure out how you are doing that because we're talking nineteen late thirties and no, no, the late forties.
2: No, no, I graduated. I graduated from high school in nineteen forty four. Okay. So the children, Cass, what year did you graduate? Nineteen eighty two. 1982. Well, she's the one who keeps me in the bubble. Oh. <laughs> Makes make sure that I'm safe and and uh, that I always have my mask, and that I wash my hands, and, and that I keep my distance.
0: <laughs> I think the bubble um, is going to go on for a while. I don't see the bubble. I mean, we're talking right now. We're in a pandemic. I don't see the bubble going away past pandemic. I think people are still going to have bubble mentality. I mean, oh, I do too. I yeah. Think- yeah,
2: I think so. I think we're going to have to be very careful for quite a while. But, you know, there, I, I compare it to, to things like, you know, going through, I actually do not remember suffering at all during the Depression or anything. My parents were, you know, certainly no wealth or anything. I don't mean that. But they were always a home that was full of love. And we always had people, relatives that lived with us constantly. But I do remember a great deal of the sacrifices that were made during the war. Mm. Because that that was more immediate to me and involved me more than the depression ever did. And we had, you know, when we talk about the unknown and when we might be getting vaccinations and, and all of this, when the pandemic may be May lesson. It's an unknown. It's a great unknown. The war was a great unknown mm-hmm. to us. We had no idea. At least we think now when we think about the possibility of a vaccine coming fairly soon within, you know, say within even a year, doesn't seem like that long a time right now. Because during wartime, we had no idea. Mm. We were fighting in in Europe and in Asia and, and how long it would be, no one had any idea. So that it doesn't frighten me, the fact of, of the unknown with the pandemic and everything. We don't, of course, pray that it will end soon, yes. but it doesn't frighten me because of that past experience. I think when we had faced the unknown previously If you're my age.
0: (laughs) What kind of um, experiences did you have during wartime where it it just felt like the bottom fell out or it was shocking or you didn't know from one day to the next what was going to happen? I'll
2: tell you one story that involves the relatives from Wilmot. Again, my mother's brother had seven children, six girls and one boy. Hmm. And they lived in Wilmot And during the war years, there were no jobs. There were no jobs in that little town at all. So my uncle decided his oldest daughter had gone to California. She had a good job. And she said, you've got to come out here because this was in 1944. There are all kinds of jobs out here. You can get a job out here. So my uncle piled his children into the car. They stopped in Aberdeen and picked up my twin cousins who had lived with us for two years, picked the girls up. And my father said to my uncle, well, where are you going? This is a small car mm-hmm. and these, all these people, these kids. And my dad said to Uncle Bertie, where, where, where is your spare tire? And he said, well, I don't have a spare tire. And my dad said well you can't make a trip like to california without a spare tire and he said well i don't have one well dad had a friend who owned a station um who had well hopefully had it and he went and asked the station owner if he by chance had a tire that my uncle could use to take could have to go to california and his friend the Owner of the gas station and the tire shop said, I have one, one oh. tire, but he will have to send it back. Well. Oh. So he took that tire, made it to California. How on earth they ever did that? I will, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine how they did. But they got to California, they all got jobs, they all stayed in California and they were all had families that were happy in the hole oh. and, and he sent the tire back
0: and he <laughs> that was yeah. i'm i'm picturing the girl sitting in the trunk <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
2: i don't think they had trunks in that oh. in those days i don't think there was a trunk in the car so
0: it was more of a station wagon type of oh, car. well kind of it was just kind of a Squat car. Because we're talking about eight kids at this point, right?
2: (laughs) Well, it was seven. No, it was six children, six kids and the two. Yes, mother and dad. So, yes, there were eight of them in that car. Oh, my Lord. We can't go with five
0: in a car now and we think it's crowded. Yike.
1: (laughs) She's right. She does have a great memory.
0: And fun stories. She'd be great to have a cup of coffee with to start the mornings, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Who needs the morning papers?
1: (laughs) And to go back to something you mentioned, such as where we keep our family treasures, family photos, it's probably time to figure all that out.
0: And right on cue, Thomas Allen Harris is joining us.
1: Now, of course, he is an expert.
0: And a great person.
1: Award-winning filmmaker Thomas Allen Harris took to heart his powerful film through a lens darkly, black photographers and the emergence of a people. The spotlight on rare photos featured in his documentary birth, Family Pictures USA, and his digital diaspora family reunion, where families of all walks of life dig into their archives and with Thomas's team, identifies members of a generation's past in an effort to preserve history.
0: Thanks for listening in with us, Thomas. We're big fans.
3: Oh, <laughs> now, thank you, Nicole.
0: Oh, cool. Thank Thomas, you, Brian. Hey, Thomas, you have, um, you know, you've probably met a lot of people who move around from city to city. I'm guilty as charged. So, family heirlooms may not survive. I mean, I forget why I'm even holding on to certain photos and letters, and you know, it just it becomes a mess. So, what are we to do? <laughs>
3: Well, you know, I, I think it's really important to um, make those archives um, something that we use. You know, when our parents or grandparents were putting together uh, scrapbooks or family albums, it was something that was very functional. So even if it was something that would, they would take out once a year or, you know, or twice a year to show kids or show other members, or, you know, when people were, moving around a lot you know particularly during the great migration you know they would send photographs and so we'd figure out where in the scrapbook we'd put these photographs you know either they'd be in a scrapbook or they'd be um decorating our walls and so um with the you know advance in the digital age we don't necessarily use the books as much, you know, and we're not curating images, we're not actually engaging in them and in the stories. And so they become, in some ways, like relics. And so what I realized when we started working on the Digital Diaspora Family Reunion Project was that if you give people an opportunity to create a story using their family photographic albums, you know, it helps them then to re-engage in that curatorial aspect with their archive. And, you know, they become mini kind of curators in, in their mini museums you know, of the family album. And, um, and so it, all of a sudden the archive then breathes and has life um, and has a purpose and allows them or inspires them to be creative with their family photographic archives. So so that, you know, the, if you don't lose it, for me, the archive is like anything else. If you don't use it, you kind of lose it. And so particularly like thinking about it in terms of languages, you know, uh, or practices.
0: Yes, I mean, we'd started off this conversation um, with Doris Carey Graber about the cousin letter they used to write. Uh, I love that, that for months, this one letter grew and grew and grew because it went from one cousin to the next, to the next with the news, right? But where do you put that? (laughs) So I love what you're saying is that you keep, if you keep it alive by bringing it out, having a special place and using it in conversation, that's amazing.
3: Yeah, and also using it creatively. You know, my mom um, mm-hmm. is a good example. Um, in nineteen, I think it was what ninety seven. No, no, I'm sorry, 1992. Um, I got my first video camera, mm-hmm. and um, and I, I decided to interview my grandfather. He was in his 80s at that time, and I invited my mom to join me in interviewing interviewing him. And um, and uh, he died five years later. And um, about 10 years ago, she asked me for that transcript. And so I gave it to her and she used that to actually write a uh, uh, kind of a historical novel because he spoke about his grandparents. And so we had this documentation of our family going back five or six generations, you know, and they also went through the Spanish flu. So that was part of the story. And so my mom spent like, yeah, she she was a chemistry professor, you know, in her- uh, I you know, remember she's really, really bright. So She started writing this historical novel. She started taking classes, you know, at um, a variety of different writing workshops around New York City. And she self-published a historical novel, which one day I hope to turn into a film or a, a short mm-hmm. series. It's called Coal, War and Love. And, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, so she actually used that process to really dig into the archives and to get all of her first cousins to look into your archives and so it became a kind of community uh, project a family project and um, and that is you know, it, it also involved letters um, and us kind of looking at this material and every time she would source something or find something new we'd get together and look at it and talk about it and be inspired by it.
0: Oh, that's incredible! I and you're going on the road. I understand with your well, you're, you've been on the road at three different continents, from what I hear, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with your um, road show, your family reunion road show. Um, anything that sticks out, as especially like a family who really, really just benefited from
3: your services. Um... Yes, I mean, I've interviewed over four thousand people about their family photographic archives. You know, oh, with our outrageous. digital diaspora <laughs> family reunion first, and then with our uh, PBS series, Family Pictures USA. And so, um, so you know, I mean, the, the stories are legion. Um, we had um, a, a, a a a kind of mixed race family in North Carolina that came together.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, it was spurred on by a revelation by, that was made by the, a young woman, young European American woman. And she realized that the woman who had been her third grade teacher, who she was very in, still in touch with was actually her cousin because mm. they shared a common great great grandfather wow. who, um, who was uh, you know, uh, you know, had an <laughs> enslaved woman, an uh, impregnated enslaved woman. And, uh, and his wife made her get the kids out of the house. And, you know, and so um, and so they knew they always knew the story, and then, but uh, but then it got lost somehow, and then they found each other and they each had the same photo. And so that was pretty amazing, (laughs) you know? um, And so we have a lot of stories like that, um, you know, both in terms of, you know, between blacks and whites, but also we have stories of in Florida, we interviewed a variety of uh, folks who were part of the Seminole nation. And so a lot of their images were images that were taken Uh, by um, traveling photographers, you know, for these ethnographic books. And so they open the books and they're like, this is my great-great-grandmother. And this is Mm -hmm. what she was doing at this particular time. And so it was really this nexus of kind of public-private archives. These these people that we see, Mm -hmm. you know, decontextualized are also family members. Yeah. And so it was really wonderful when family members can actually say, well, you know, I do feel a certain ambivalence about, you know, these photographers coming and just like, you know, objectifying my ancestors, but I do have these images and this kind of visual history and record because they did come and they, these images were preserved in, in mm-hmm. Washington and other places.
1: And how do you you really tell the story behind, you know, sometimes it's just one photograph and, you know, as they say, you know, one photograph is worth at least a thousand words, you know, Mm -hmm. So, so how do you, I don't know, get people, one, to get them engaged in the story, but also to help shape the story or actually tell a story based on, you know, such little information a lot of times we have associated with a photograph?
3: Well, um, You know, photographs speak to us in a variety of different ways. Uh, One, you know, five people can look at the same photograph and see five different things. And those five people can be five sisters, for instance, you know, they have Mm -hmm. their own relationship and their own story with Mm -hmm. regards to the photograph as an object, the people in the photograph and their relationship to the photographs. And then, so you have on the one hand, you have that, but on the other hand, you have the different, what I've come to realize is that, and I talk about this in my TED talk, is that people will come to us wanting to share a story about a photograph. And so they get in front of our cameras and they hold the photograph up, they look at it and they begin telling the story and all of a sudden something unexpected happens. They start, the the, the, the kind of the story of their heart starts to reveal itself because they might not necessarily been prepared to start bawling on camera or <laughs> right. to reveal a secret that had been stored away, you know, hidden um but that they not, might not have told the other family members, but through the photograph they're able to access that kind of revelation.
1: Amazing advice. Great to hang out with you again, Thomas.
0: Thanks, Thomas.
3: My pleasure to spend time with you. I'm so excited for this podcast.
0: Uh, Thanks so much. We return to my conversation with Doris. And for listeners who've experienced some dark days, our friend from the beautiful landscapes of South Dakota shares a lesson for us all. What attracted you and your husband to each other? How did you guys meet? Well, that really
2: was crazy because he was (laughs) 6'3". And you're how how tall? I am. I was Five, one and a half. Wow! Push, as she says, pushing it. Yeah. Um, we were on a double date with a friend, and uh, who was with Carl, and I was with another friend, and we had gone to a dance. And he, uh, I, Carl, we traded dances, and Carl said to me, um, "Would you like to come?" to the dance we had a pavilion that had dances every Saturday night he said would you like to go to the dance with me next Saturday night and I said yeah I think that would be fine I'd like that and I said why don't you call me early Wednesday because there's a good movie on Mm -hmm. so he said I'll call okay okay I'll call you I'll call you Wednesday and maybe we can go to the movie and then we'll go to the dance on Saturday night and that was it <laughs> we never never dated anybody else he was an excellent dancer yes he was oh, that's so nice how old were you then when you guys met 20 let's see I was because I was out of college no I was not out of college it was in 46 so I was 19. oh
0: while well, you were still in college you met your husband oh yes oh yeah we were still in college mm-hmm. and that was before I went to northwestern interesting okay great and then yeah he stuck with you it was great (laughs) yes in fact he came to northwestern (laughs) oh wow wow when i when i graduated i
2: graduated mid-year and when i graduated then he he came home too Mm
0: -hmm. so oh that's wonderful how sweet so um maybe some advice um it's it's wild but i know when People my age or a little younger, like I would say, like 35, 40, is, and they have children, right? And they're so in love with them. And I hear this phrase, um, you know, I don't know what I would do. It would be impossible for me to move on if I lost my, my child. And I know when I talk to people who have outlived their children, you know, it's like you do move on, but what advice would you give? I mean, how do you do it when, because things happen, life happens?
2: Life does happen and there isn't anything you can do about it except, as I've said to my children for years and years and years, one of the most important words in the whole universe is acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I think it was very difficult when we lost Chrissy, it was very, very difficult to accept the fact that she had been taken from us. So that when the when Cass and Mark came to tell me that Mark had had a, a massive heart attack, I had the strange feeling, this, this can't be happening. But then I thought, yes, it can. It can because it has. Mm. It has happened before, it can happen again. And it's just, you, you rely on your family, your friends your faith you just you have to accept the fact there are times when you would you know like to break a, a break a window or you or you're, you would like to do something physical
0: mm.
2: that would make you feel better but nothing does nothing makes you feel better physically than that so when you decide that there is only one thing you can do and that's to accept the it except the unacceptable
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's um, it is it's the most devastating thing that any parent could ever 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 go through. but mm-hmm. uh, you then you move on because in the first place, particularly if you have other children, you know you are surrounded. you are surrounded by other people who are among the living. And you are among the living,
0: so. So that's your responsibility, of course, is to move our on. Responsibility,
2: and and it's to try to make the most of a despicable situation. Yeah. And, yeah. So. And and it you know it does time time does help to heal time never completely heals about it there's always as they say the whole there's always the whole but there again you accept the fact that there it's there but it's a part of you so you accept that
0: Mm -hmm. oh that's great advice very pointed i would have never thought of that you know it just the time thing i hear over and over again but acceptance that's you know that is going on faith (laughs) <laughs> it really is it
2: is, it is. It, and 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 if, and your faith does help it has helped me and i think it yeah i think it most helps most people that uh, that you and i i believe that in some way or another i don't know how but i believe that somehow or another we will all be together again this is this is and i don't know how it's going to happen mm-hmm. and I certainly don't know when it's gonna happen. Right.
0: <laughs> so we know you do a lot of things, Doris, but the crystal ball is maybe not what <laughs> <laughs> crystal
2: ball leaves no message. <laughs> I'll tell you what I think one of the one of the most important things in life is a sense of humor. If you don't have a sense of humor, if you can't laugh i don't know how you would get through life i really don't and okay. i have been surrounded by people who have wonderful senses of humor and this is and a sense of play you know life is <laughs> <laughs> life is not is is not all seriousness and it cannot be you know we have to be able to enjoy and play and and love one another it's love and I have been very very fortunate that I have had I have been surrounded from the day I was born with so much love Mm -hmm. that and I, I can't stress that enough I'd say love and humor and
0: acceptance of course yeah
2: love humor and acceptance well we ought to be able to do something
1: with that
0: so that's doris and it was so great to chat about family photos with our friend thomas
1: oh it sure was
0: you know doris is such a great
1: mom she makes sense it's all about having a sense of humor
0: and a sense of play
1: love humor and acceptance
0: that's all it takes And to you, our audience, if you enjoyed our visit to South Dakota through Doris's eyes, drop us a line and let us know by visiting our website at beforeyougo.tv. That's beforeyougo.tv.
1: And while at our website, let us know if you have people in your circles who have stories to tell. We want to hear about their corner of the world. Visit beforeyougo.tv and submit their info for our podcast. And before we go... We want to remind everyone that stories like these are sometimes just a phone call away.
0: Might be time to pick up the phone.
1: There's no time like the present. What a gift.
0: Before You Go is an Epiphany, Inc. production. Hear more from Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte at BeforeYouGo.tv.